Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the former first vice president at New York Life, a retired lieutenant colonel and an economist, considered by many to be the retirement expert. His PBS TV special, Don't Worry, Retire Happy, has played in over 80 million homes in the United States and Canada. He's trained over 300,000 financial advisors and given over 5,000 public seminars and webinars, and is a member of the elite million-dollar speakers group of the National Speakers Association, the top one-half of 1% of professional speakers in the world. It's my great honor to welcome to the show, Tom Hagna. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me today. So firstly, I wanted to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background in the Army and your life, and most recently at TomHagna.com for our viewers who aren't familiar. Sure. So I'm originally from a small town in Minnesota. I went to North Dakota State University on an Army ROTC scholarship. I was commissioned in the military. I spent six years active duty Army, 16 and a half years Army Reserve, uh, retired as Lieutenant Colonel in 2006. I was in the insurance industry for you know almost 30 years. I was eight years with MetLife. I was an agent, a manager, a national marketing manager for their variable life insurance product. And then I went over to New York Life. I spent 15 years. I started out as an annuity wholesaler and kind of worked my way up to become a senior executive officer in the company. I retired from that in 2011. I went on my own. I've written five books on retirement. As you said, the PBS TV special. I've been in a couple movies, The Power of Zero, and now the latest one, The Baby Boomer Del and all I do is I train financial advisors and I help people uh, with their retirement strategies. I don't sell any financial products. I don't get compensated on the sale of any financial products, but I, I do public seminars to show people how to retire the optimal way. Because right now, if they ask 50 people how they're supposed to retire, they're going to get 50 different opinions, but there aren't 50 optimal ways to do it. There's really one optimal way. And that's what I write about. And that's what I speak about. I wanted to start off by talking a bit about your strategy for approaching retirement planning. So as you've said in the past, there tends to be a lot of confusion around various investment strategies, and it seems like every financial advisor has their own unique approach. So over your career, you've been one of the biggest advocates for annuities, which are sort of like a savings account with a life insurance company that pays a guaranteed amount every year for the rest of your life, although there are several um, different varieties and options. So, Tom, could you please lay out your argument in favor of annuities, which type of annuity you prefer and why they're superior to alternative um, retirement investment options? Yeah, well, like I said, I don't sell any annuities. And so it's really not these aren't my opinions. This is the research of PhDs around the world, like Dr. David Babel of Wharton, Dr. Olivia Mitchell of Wharton, Dr. Menachem Yari, Dr. Moshe Malevsky, Dr. David Blanchett, Dr. Michael Finke, Dr. Wade Faust. I mean, this is the research of the top PhDs in the world world who, who really have studied the subject of retirement. And uh, it was Dr. Menachem Yari back in the 1960s that proved only a lifetime income annuity can optimize income over the indefinite period of a human life. See, you don't know when you're going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. But the insurance company knows almost to the exact day when a thousand of us are going to die. And they don't know who's going to live longer or not, but on a group of a thousand people, they know almost to the exact day when when that's going to happen. And so they can pay each and every one of us 
as though they knew when we were going to die. And so it's the way to get the highest paycheck possible guaranteed for the rest of your life. There's no other product in the world that will give you a higher guaranteed paycheck for the rest of your life. And so what the research shows is nobody's supposed to put all their money any one place. You're supposed to cover your basic living expenses in retirement with guaranteed lifetime income. So you figure out how much money do you need to pay for your housing, your clothing, your food, your, you know, your cell phone, your internet, all of your basic living expenses. And then you subtract out any annuities that you already have. Most people have social security. It's a lifetime income annuity. So that counts. Uh, some people have a pension, which is a lifetime income annuity. It counts. So you, so you then subtract out your social security, subtract out your pension, and then whatever you're short, that's where the annuity fits. So that's what the research shows. And, and then above that, so, you know, my first book was paychecks and playchecks. So that's the paycheck. And then the playcheck can be invested in the market, can be invested in real estate, can be invested wherever you want. Um, but the, the research is very clear that you should have guaranteed lifetime income covering those basic living expenses. Okay. So why then, if, if the math on this is, is so clear, are annuities so much less renowned and used, and why aren't all financial advisors recommending it then? Well, because some financial advisors have an agenda um, to get paid on assets under management. And so if they're getting paid on assets under management, they don't want their clients to take money out of there and buy an annuity uh, because they think they're going to get paid less money. And, and I mean, it should never be a case where an advisor does something because it helps them more than their client. They should always put the client's needs first. And unfortunately, many advisors are not doing that. I just did a post today about there's this uh, article in Think Advisor magazine and it talks about fiduciaries who aren't living up to their fiduciary standard because they're not using annuities, they're not using life insurance, they're not using long-term care insurance. So how can you be doing what's best for your clients if you're not taking off longevity risk and the risk of long-term care and the risk of mortality? You're not doing what's best for your clients. So, you know, I think there's always got to be a balance. But uh, again, I go back to the research. I don't, I can't find a PhD that's against annuities. I haven't been able to find one. Maybe there is one out there, but I mean, the vast majority, 99.9% of the PhDs and economists are very pro-annuity. So um, when you talk, say annuities, do you mean um, fixed or, or variable? Well, I, you know, I stay away from, from telling people what flavor of annuity to buy, but you know, all annuities can be turned into guaranteed lifetime income. And that's really what we're talking about. We're talking in retirement. You want to have some income annuities. Now you can buy a single premium median annuity that provides income, a deferred income annuity that provides income. You, you can take a fixed annuity, annuitize that, the fixed indexed annuity, a variable annuity that, you know, when people say the fees and annuities are high. There's only one type of annuity that has fees, really. That's variable annuities. So single premium media annuities are not fee products. Deferred income annuities are not fee products. Fixed annuities are not fee products. Fixed indexed annuities are not fee products. Those are all what are called spread products. They're not a fee. It's only variable annuities that have fees and then some optional riders that have fees. But having a fee isn't bad. I mean, I own three variable annuities. Those are the bad ones with the high fees. Why would I do it? Because I want to make as much as I can make. If I can make 10%, 20%, 30%, I want to make as much as I can make. But just as important, in fact, for me, more important, I don't want to lose what I've already got. Well, Vanguard can't do that for me. Fidelity can't do that for me. Mr. Ken Fisher can't do that for me. That's what a, that's what a variable annuity can do for me because it's got guarantees that when the market crashes, I don't lose all my money. 
Yeah. Um, so for a lot of people, in fact, for 53% of people in the United States, their only source of retirement income is social security. So in your book, Paychecks and Playchecks, as well as in your past works, you've laid out an argument as to the issues faced by social security and why depending solely upon it is problematic. So Tom, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about why relying on social security alone, especially for the younger generation, isn't particularly a good strategy. Well, I mean, Social Security was never meant to be, you know, your only source of income in retirement. It was supposed to help supplement, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent maybe, but not the whole thing. I mean, the, the paychecks are so small on Social Security, it should just be a portion. Um, you know, you're supposed to be saving and investing as you go and building up a portfolio that then you can take, you know, for the average person, 20 to 40 percent of their portfolio should go into an annuity. The rest can be in the market or do whatever they want. Um, but just to be on Social Security only uh, would mean a very, very limited and probably unhappy retirement for most people. Yeah. So next, I wanted to ask you a bit about life insurance. So you've been a big proponent of life insurance policies, even for wealthy individuals claiming that they're ideal from a tax standpoint. Um, could you please explain this view and tell us um, your take on the whole term life and whole life insurance policy debate? Yeah. So, I mean, what I tell people is, you know, you might have heard a lot of stuff about life insurance, but let me tell you the truth. Here's the ultimate truth about life insurance. The only policy that matters is the one that's in force on the day that you die. It doesn't matter if it's term life, whole life, universal life, verbal life. The only policy that matters is the one that's in force on the day that you die. The problem is that, ter that term policies are enforced less than 2% of the time on the day that you die. So over 98% of people who have term insurance, it never pays a death claim. And, and so term is really good for younger people. When the, when the bills are high, when the paycheck is small, when the kids are little, you buy term insurance to have adequate coverage. But you can't use term insurance in retirement because term gets to be too expensive when you get into your 60s and most people cancel it in their 50s or 60s. And so you have to use cash value life insurance. Now, I use life insurance for my family in two different ways. Number one, I use it. I, I've been pouring more of my personal wealth into cash value life insurance. I choose whole life. Some people like index universal life. Some people like variable life. I'll stay out of that argument. But I, my, my whole life premium is $226,000 a year. So I'm putting a lot of money into life insurance. Why? Because I, I want to have millions of dollars of tax-free income in retirement. And, and I can take that money out tax-free in retirement. So that's one way I use it. The second way that I use it is to leave money to my kids. See, a lot of people think, a lot of people think they got to leave money to their kids. And so, so they live a suboptimal retirement. And what I tell people is don't leave any money to your kids, spend your money. All right. Leave them life insurance. And I use me as an example. We got four kids. One day we're sitting around saying how much we leave the kids. My wife said, I don't know. What do you think? I said, well, if we bought a $1 million second to die life insurance policy, name the four kids a beneficiary. When we're both gone, they're going to give it a million dollars tax-free. That's 250,000 a piece tax-free plus whatever's left over. I said, let's start there. So we bought a $1 million second to die life insurance policy, name the four kids a beneficiary. That policy is completely paid up. The total cost of that million dollar policy was $150,000. So now think about that. For 15 cents on the dollar, we transfer a million dollars tax-free to our kids. But here's the best part. Who gets to spend the other 850,000? We do. So if you use life insurance to go to your kids, you can actually spend more money for yourself in retirement. And so what I just try to teach people is how to get the most for the least out of retirement, because there's no dress rehearsal. There's no second chance. You got to get it right the first time. And that's what I write about. That's what I speak about. 
So how, how is that possible um, that you can put in $150,000 into life insurance and, and somehow get a million dollars on the other end of it? How, how is that still profitable for the insurance company? Well, it is. They take the 150000 they invest it. Now, they're going to lose money on some people. If I died tomorrow, they lost money for sure. You know, and they're going to they're going to lose on people who die early. But then there are going to be people who live to be 120 and they're going to still be investing that money. Um, so, I mean, that's how it is. I mean, life insurance, the life insurance industry has been around for 150 years, 100, 200 years, you know, so they've got this down to a science. It's all based in math and science. That's what people don't understand. Life insurance and annuities are based in math and science. You know, the people who set the payout rates on annuities and who set the premiums on life insurance, they're called actuaries. Do you know what actuaries have to study to become actuaries? They have to study math and science. So, so these products are based in math and science. They use the law of large numbers. They use risk pooling. And that's what the research shows is the most efficient way of, of transferring wealth. So next, I wanted to ask you about some other more conventional forms of retirement savings, such as mutual funds, ETFs, and so on. So for the average American worker saving a couple thousand dollars um, every every year over their working life, would you recommend getting a managed portfolio at, at a company like New York Life as compared to just putting it in something simpler like a, a Vanguard S&P 500 or, or splitting it up um, on, on their own and saving money on fees? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not big into into paying fees unless there's benefits to it, you know, I mean, it, but if you only look at fees, you're going to miss some really good products um, uh, because it's not about fees, it's about value. It's about which products give you the best value. But I really leave that up to the financial advisors. I don't get deep in the weeds on which mutual fund or which ETF. I've owned mutual funds, I've owned ETFs, I've had managed portfolios. Um, you know, I think the key is when you're young, you want to stay diversified, and, you know, asset allocation is what really make, makes the difference in your rate of return over time more than individual stocks or individual funds. It's your asset allocation and are you properly diversified? So, you know, I think it's so important to work with a financial professional. I don't believe retirement is a do-it-yourself project. I don't think investing is a do-it-yourself project. Certainly you can do it yourself, but I think you're going to have a suboptimal result. I would rather see people with a very highly qualified financial advisor. I think they're going to do better that way. And so how do people find um, a financial advisor? So um, you mentioned in the past that people um, that some financial advisors may not be working in your interest. They may may be working to get get a commission from from um, the things that they're selling you. How how do you know um, if you've got a good financial advisor? Well, what I what I recommend is talk to some of your wealthier friends. If you know people who have money, just ask them, hey, do you have somebody that helps you with your money? And, and you know, get some referrals. And then I always tell people, interview at least two or three people before you make a decision. Now, the other thing is, I, you know, and I have nothing against new financial advisors. I was a new financial advisor at one time. But, I, but I'll tell you this, people who have been an advisor for 20, 30, 40 years, that is actually a very good indicator because you know, you can be a crook for a short period of time in this industry, but you can't be a crook for a long period of time. It's just not possible. You know, there'll be too many complaints and all this stuff. So, so the longer a person's been an advisor, the better chance you have that they, that they're doing things the right way. Um, just because they say they're a fiduciary doesn't mean they are a fiduciary. I mean, I see a lot of fiduciaries and not using annuities and not using life insurance. So they're, they're fake fiduciaries. Um, so, so you really got to, you know, and and what's most important to you is investing more important to you or is retirement more important to you? Because there are different advisors that specialize in different things. So, 
you know, I, I again, I if, if they have letters behind their name, that can be helpful. It means they've got ethics training. It means they've been trained in certain things. If they've got longevity, that can be an asset. Um, but I don't want to disrespect the younger advisors either. Um, you know, but just just try to get some referrals, do some interviews, find somebody who clicks with you. If what they say seems to make sense, that's good. If, if you're confused, if they talk over your head, I wouldn't go with them. I'd go with somebody that makes you comfortable. Yeah. Um, so I, I also wanted to talk to you um, and get your take on some new types of quote unquote investments that seem to be becoming more and more prevalent, especially with younger people. I'm talking, of course, about um, cryptocurrencies. So a lot of young people and millennials are heavily invested in cryptocurrencies, with some suggesting that it's a temporary bubble bound to burst, while others maintain that it's the way of the future. So I know it's not your specific area of expertise, but as someone with so much experience in investing in finance, I wanted to get your take on, on where this is headed. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I spent my whole life talking about guarantees and, and you know, locking in profits and things. And I, I, I did a positive post on crypto about a year and a half ago. And I got all these messages. Tom, you've been hacked. Your account's been hacked. That can't be you. You would never say something good about crypto. And, and that's not true. Um, just so you know, I was the biggest crypto non-believer a few years ago. I mean, I said, well, this, it's worth nothing. It's a greater fool theory. You know, if I buy it, then I got to find somebody more foolish to pay me more. But, you know, the blockchain technology is here to stay and that's going to be here. And, and I watched this guy on CNBC about uh, three years ago lay out a, a very, very strong, believable case to a non-believer like me that Bitcoin could hit a million dollars of Bitcoin someday. And he said, all I'm recommending amongst my millionaire and billionaire clients is that they put 1% of their portfolio into crypto because if it goes to zero, 1% is not going to hurt you. If it goes to a million dollars of Bitcoin, you're going to be really happy you put 1%. And, and that resonated with me. And I said, okay, I'm going to move 1% of my portfolio to crypto. And I did back when Bitcoin was like $3,000 of Bitcoin. Well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was 68,000. Right now it's around close to 50,000. But I mean, I just think that's a prudent strategy. In fact, I've said on more than one occasion, I think a 1% holding is more prudent than zero. Because if you have a 0% holding, you're not participating in anything. And, and it's not like cryptos, like the Beanie Baby thing. This has been the number one asset class for one year, three years, five years, 10 years. So if you're not in it, you know, it's kind of like the lottery. You gotta, if you don't play, you can't win. And so I, I, I got a lottery ticket. I, I put 1% of my portfolio. So, so it does worry me as I just was watching a CNBC before we got on this call and it said 30% of millennials have 70% or more of their investments in crypto. That concerns me because, you know, crypto could have problems. And, and just because, you know, I'm talking Bitcoin, there's, there's Ethereum, there's Dogecoin, there's all this other stuff. And I'm, I'm very concerned if they're putting all this money into some of these coins that could, could very well become worthless in the future. I, I just think, you know, a one to 5% allocation, you know, is, is reasonable. Anything above that, I would be very cautious about. I, I yeah, you can become a multimillionaire and you can go dead broke. So, you know, I just, I, that's not my style, but I, I think you should have some exposure, but I don't think you should go hog wild with it either. Okay. Um, so for, for a lot of our, our viewers who are listening that, um, that are probably a bit younger, um, probably starting out in, in their careers or, you know, just getting into the, the workforce and, and don't really have a handle on doing this, this retirement savings thing. Um, I, I know you, you've recommended annuities in the past. I just wanted to revisit that quickly. Um, would that, is annuity something that you should be looking into at the, at the start when you're younger, or is that something um, that's, that's only really relevant when you start getting close to retirement? 
Well, annuities are for retirement. So as long as the money is for retirement, I'm okay if if money goes into the annuity. But, you know, younger people, they got to worry about getting married, getting a first house, having kids, you know. And and so, you know, the younger you are, the less money you should probably have in annuities. But if, you know, if somebody's really, you know, diligent and conservative and they, they're working and they're saving, I have no problem with somebody in their 20s or 30s putting a portion of their retirement savings into an annuity. I, I don't have a problem with that, but I, again, younger people, I would, I would encourage to have more liquidity to their, you know, to their, to, so they have options because life changes and things that change and you don't want to have, you know, all your money locked up to 59 and a half necessarily. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show with us. So thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Tom's several books, including Paychecks and Playchecks, are available on Amazon, and I highly recommend you go check them out. Once again, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.